Let's turn to Exodus 22 this morning. Exodus 22, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. We're walking through this Exodus story. Remember, out of Egypt, God brought his people to Mount Sinai. There at Mount Sinai, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then after the Ten Commandments, God gives them what is called the Book of the Covenant. This is a a series of, of detailed applications for how the nation of Israel as a people should apply God's law in their daily life. Exodus is a story of deliverance, but it's not really just a story of deliverance. It is so much greater than that. Far more importantly than the story, far more important than the story of deliverance is that Exodus is answering this question. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? It's the same question that was asked by Pharaoh back in chapter 5, and it is a question that continues to be answered. A grand story of deliverance and salvation, but God is revealing his character. If you didn't know that, I think ancient property laws would make you go, "Ah, I need to find a new church. But ancient property laws understood in the context of the scriptures where God says, I want you to know who I am and I want you to learn what it means to live in light of who I am. That's a totally different story. Here's physical account making a spiritual point. God saves us. God reveals himself. God summons us to love our neighbor and to love him. Let's read Exodus chapter 22 verses 1 through 15. Here's God's word. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it's stolen from the man's house, Then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and show whether or not he has put his hand to the neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, that's it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it's torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence." He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. 
If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, as we approach a passage like this, we realize that it is written into a different time and a different place. And yet so many are unwilling to, to, to read this passage. So many are unwilling to preach it because somewhere deep down we think that there are other parts of the Bible uh, that are more your word than this. So we pray that you would conquer those thoughts within our hearts, those concerns or doubts, that you would give to your people genuine ears to hear what you would say to them. And now, O oh God, would you again use a sinner a crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. In college, he was called the fruit checker, a young man deeply skilled in the art of determining whether a person, person was a genuine Christian or whether they were a wolf in sheep's clothing. And at 20 years old, this fella was extremely confident in his own spiritual insights, his own ability to read someone else's heart from virtually any distance. And so the fruit checker could determine whether you were a Christian or whether you were or whether you weren't. His favorite passage of the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so the fruit checker, as if he was himself, the Holy Spirit would render judgments well, I just don't think I see any real fruit in him or in her. And with that, the fruit checker could determine the spiritual condition and maybe be right or maybe not. Ironically, of course, the fruit checker, by his attitude and his pride, contradicted the very attitude which Jesus was instructing in the passage which the fruit checker loved so much. In fact, he was more like the false prophets that Jesus was condemning than he was like Jesus himself. To add to the irony of his ways, it was in the context of that same passage that Jesus warned those who follow him not to be those who are busy judging the spiritual condition of other people but rather to be deeply concerned about their own heart. Now, why do I mention the fruit checker in this spot? Because the law of God, rightly understood, should lead us not to determine how this applies to someone else, but first and foremost, how it deeply applies to me. Before us is a passage which is about personal property, stealing and carelessness and borrowing. But as you read this passage, what you suddenly realize is that the heart of God is revealed here. And here's biblical instruction on how to love others well in all kinds of circumstances. They may not be the circumstances that you and I face, but they're perfect for the case in which it was written. What does this tell me about myself? Well, it tells me that I tend to love myself, I tend to love my things, more than I love you and more than you, more than I love your things. Beneath the surface of a passage on civil laws is a simple instruction that those who desire to love as Christ loves 
must live in a manner that's totally different from what your flesh would otherwise do. No need to go looking for someone else's fruit. There's plenty here to deal with our own hearts. Here's what the passage teaches us. Those in Christ bear the fruits of love. And so here's a case law, which is building on the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And it fleshes out real life application in a world into which it was written. And so this morning, we're going to start with certain principles that are evident in the passage. That's our first point. Second point, an explanation of those laws. Finally, we'll talk about the heart attitudes which are uncovered here. So, principles, explanation, heart. We'll start with principles. Uh, There are really four concepts that are kind of woven into this passage, and we're going to say them out loud so that we recognize them when we come across them in the text. Here I'm going to borrow some elements of another pastor who preached on this same text back in 2017. I'm borrowing the general structure of this portion of the outline. The first principle is this. In the Bible, there is such thing as private property. How do I know that? Well, there's no such thing as stealing or borrowing if you do not have this underlying principle that individuals and families are given the right to own personal property. In fact, what the Bible is doing here is speaking on an assumption that people just do have property. And yet, throughout the course of human history, were in the world kings and rulers and whole civil governments have confiscated personal property. And they've confiscated those things under what they might have called the divine right of that king or of that ruler. But you should recognize this is not just an ancient problem. And here's what I mean. There are even today political movements which would still frown at some level on the right of you or me to own personal property. As if it's selfish. As if it is the nature of what's wrong with the world. In the Bible, the divine right to personal property is actually presumed. And so if somebody steals from you, It is not absurd and it's not greedy to desire to have your things back. In the Bible, you're allowed. You're even encouraged to work and to earn and to possess certain things. They are yours. There's far more to say on that, but it begins there. Second principle in the text is the need for restitution. Restitution is basically held up against the concept of of prison, right? Restitution is restoring what you've stolen to the one from whom you've stolen it. You read this passage, my Digging Deeper group has stumbled across this as well. You realize Israel doesn't have any system whereby we're going to lock up criminals. Some would say, well, that's because they're on the move. They're not yet in the promised land. And yet you realize that the whole of this portion of the Bible is actually looking forward to the promised land. It's actually presuming that when they get into Canaan, they are not going to build large prisons. That's because God knows that restitution would be superior to lockup. One Old Testament scholar explains it like this. I think this is really helpful. Restitution, number one, compensates victims of the crime generously and immediately. Number two, restitution requires the offender to deal directly with the person he has offended. In other words, he has to face the actual person that he's stolen from and realize that's a real person and I really did bring harm. Number three, restitution permits a repentant offender 
to continue a productive life immediately upon making restoration. Number four, restitution does not require society to pay through housing, food, clothing for the criminal's action. Only the, only the thief pays for his own offense. So you recognize restitution is actually woven into these laws. What happens if a thief cannot pay back what he owes? Well, in God's law, that person becomes the slave of the person he's stolen from. Again, let me be really clear. I'm not saying that this could work in a one-to-one comparison between ancient Israel and the United States of America today. In fact, if you read the concept of slavery, you say, that seems absurd and barbaric. But what God recognized is that it would be more effective for fallen men in the nation of Israel to be paid back from the thief so that the thief feels the weight of that, and that in itself would deter future crimes, which brings us to our third principle. For every theft of property, the punishment is always pay back in full plus something more. If you steal a sheep and you sell it or you kill it, and you're caught, you don't simply get to return that sheep, you return four of them. In the case of an ox, it's a one to five comparison. But if you steal the animal and you're still found in possession of it, and it's alive, then you give the animal back, but you also give one more. So not only do you see how this could be better for the the victim, it would also be a greater deterrent for this would-be thief, right? If I'm going to rob a bank... And all I have to do if I'm caught is, eh, here's the money back. I didn't mean anything by it. There's no deterrent. But if I rob the bank and I give back a portion again over and above what's given back, I don't really want to keep trying this stunt. In this case, of course, you would not want to keep robbing if you've had to give back between two and five times what you stole. So it's a big issue. In God's system, crime is deterred. At the same time, the victim is compensated for his losses. And the fourth and final principle is this, that there are degrees of culpability in God's law. So that an accident is not treated in the same way that a deliberate choice is treated. Was there intention to harm here? In a fallen world, It happens that animals sometimes wander off. Fires can be unpredictable. Wild animals attack sheep, no matter who's watching them. Even in our own system of laws, we recognize a a, a graded case of culpability. And so we've got these four underlying principles that are woven through the property laws. That is, number one, individuals and families have a right to private property. The second, thieves must make restitution. Payback is always significantly greater than what was stolen. That's the third. And then fourth, there are varying degrees of culpability. The Eighth Commandment says you shall not steal. But God is explaining something far better than not stealing. He's teaching them what it would be like to actually love others as God would have us love. Those in Christ bear the fruits of love. So we've looked at the principles. Now we're going to look at explanation. For those who are pastors in the room, I don't think I've ever made a single point where it was just, here's the explanation of the text. When you're dealing with case law, I think it's important that we just go, we're going to walk through this thing and bring out the main ideas. So in verses 1 through 4, we're dealing with issues of basic theft. You and I do not live in a world where people are at risk of stealing oxen or sheep. 
But these are the common items which would be stolen in the ancient world, especially in this part of the world. And so verse 1, an ox is stolen, it demands five in return. One sheep is stolen, it demands four in return. Now, what's the difference in restitution between an ox and a sheep? Well, the law is making an account for the fact that sheep sometimes wander. They really are not easily held in one spot, so they might go away. And it could happen that somebody could go, oh, there's a sheep. I don't know whose it is, but it's mine now. It's also making an allowance for the fact that a sheep, while valuable, is not nearly as valuable as an animal which can do work. And so, here's an animal that is more precious to someone who is seeking to plow their field or pull a, tra- a, uh, a wagon. You might say it in a really simple but silly way, right? The tractor is more valuable than the wool sweater. It's simple, but it's what's here. Number Verse 2 looks forward to a day when people in Israel are no longer living in tents. They're living in houses that are made of clay or mud. And the law seems to make this, this quick left turn. We were talking about stealing oxen, sheep. Now we're talking about somebody breaking into my house. So how does that relate? We'll come back to that in just a minute. It seems strange to us, but in a world where people have mud and clay walls, they don't have to kick the door down. It it would be more common that they would be digging through the back of the wall. And so in doing such a thing, the law makes a distinction between nighttime break-ins and daytime break-ins. And you, you remember, this is not a world where people turn on the flashlight and go, Oh, that's Dave, what are you doing? And it's also not a world in which people possess handguns. And so if somebody's scratching through your wall in the middle of the night, this is a legitimate threat. What is this person doing? And the law presumes here that that if somebody does that, that the intruder in in the struggle could potentially be killed. But then it makes a distinction. If you're coming through the the wall in the daytime, remember, we're not talking about kicking down doors. We're not bursting through the wall. This is this slow, methodical process. And the law presumes that if I can tell that somebody's breaking in my house, and I take a stone, and I hold the boulder over their head until they peek their head through, and then I smash their head, that wasn't an accident. That's a deliberate murder. And so it makes a distinction here. This is more like murder than self-defense. So verse 3 is making this point. You don't have to kill him. The thief is going to pay for what he steals. If he can't, he'll be sold into servanthood in your house. And if that sounds crazy or barbaric, you remember that the law makes thieves deal face-to-face with the one that they have defrauded take you back to two sermons ago to explain that the slavery that exists in the Bible in the Old Testament is nothing like chattel slavery in the United States of America. In fact, God's law makes it abundantly clear everything about chattel slavery in the United States of America is wrong. Kidnapping persons should be put to death themselves or harboring one who has been stolen. The owner would be put to death then you got this issue. Verses 1 and 4 seem to say kind of the same thing, except the only difference is whether the animal is dead or alive. And then to English readers in verse 2 and 3, it seems like it's out of place. What's happening? Why are we talking about thieves breaking into the house? Well, this is judicial, civil law. I want you to think about verse 1 and verse 4 as if they are brackets. 
And then in the middle of these brackets, holding everything together in the civil law is this comment that's meant to protect both the thief and the person who owns the house. And what's the comment? Thief, make sure you know that the person to whose house you're breaking into, that person bears the image of God. They are a person. Owner of the house, make sure you recognize that person who's scraping through your wall. They bear the image of God too. God values the protection of life, even in the context of civil law, which tells us something very, very important. There's no such thing as civil laws which are separated from moral and spiritual matters. In fact, for God's people, everything really is a moral and spiritual matter. Because everything in the law is written about people who bear the image of God or for people who bear the image of God. And here is the same point for us. Even in civil laws, we as God's people should be those who are considering spiritual matters. It's tempting for us to try to view our crime, our, our thoughts on crime and punishment, our thoughts on politics and platform, and try to separate those things from that which is to us moral or spiritual. But you see, as a person who's been united to Christ, you can't do that. You have been saved by grace through faith, and you begin to see that all matters really are spiritual matters. So because the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, you say, I'm, I'm actually putting on a biblical world and life view as if it were a new pair of glasses. And so then the entire world begins to be viewed through spiritual lenses. That's what God's calling for here. Love your neighbors like this. Hey, don't steal from them. But if you do something stupid like steal from them, Make sure that you are prepared to pay him back and then some. Verse 4 says the same thing, but in the middle of that, God makes the point, make sure you remember that both of you are human beings. Both of you have a life which bears the image of God and is worth protecting. Now, these laws fit in a certain time and a certain place. They would not work in our nation today. But I wonder if you would be willing to consider how this sundown, sunup principle could help us to think biblically in our own day. So if I say names to you like Rodney King or George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery, you immediately have thoughts. You immediately have emotions. And then you probably immediately have reasons for those thoughts and those emotions. Biblical wisdom is always applicable to real life. And so those names to us remind us of something and an incident or incidents in which there was brutality. And they've, been come, to, they've come to be known for something. What if biblical wisdom was applied here? Was force necessary? 
and then how much force was needed. Was someone's life in imminent danger? In other words, was the proverbial son down? Or can they be excused for fighting back, recognizing my life is in danger, life for life? Or should there have been another way? Is this more a condition where the sun is actually up? Perhaps it was not quite the imminent threat that we thought. Maybe there are other avenues in which we could deal with the problem. And yet, if a life is lost in the middle of civil laws, God would remind us that even the person on the ground who's being arrested or simply jogging through your neighborhood is a person who bears the image of God. And so biblical application here tells us that this is not quite so obscure as we might think. Verses 5 and 6 deal... Oh, let, me, let me pause real quick. Uh, if you've been in this church for really long, you will know that I don't read the newspapers to preach the sermons that I preach. But when an issue comes up in the text, it's always important we take the text and apply it to those things which are seen and known in the culture. That's why we come across that today. Verse 5 and 6 deal with issues of carelessness or neglect. The first issue pertains to a man who, fall, who fails to watch his cattle or his flocks, and they wander off into a person's field, and there's no barbed wire in those days, and so they begin to eat the field of somebody else. And if your flock graves in somebody else's field, you didn't mean it to happen. There would be something in you that would be tempted to say, hey, sorry, you know, it was an accident, I'll get him back. The law says there's actually more that should be done. You have the right to make restitution even with an accident. Likewise, you can imagine that you've harvested your own field, and in order to make sure you clear that field, you set it on fire. But fire is not always predictable, and so maybe it jumps, or maybe the wind catches it. And your friend who's already harvested his field has his wheat in a bundle and it catches his wheat on fire. Or his wheat is still standing in the field and his field is immediately consumed. You can't say, ah, it was a mistake. Listen, I'm I'm sorry about your loss. It's not enough to say sorry. Hope that turns out okay for you. You must actually say, okay, I'm going to make restitution for that. How am I going to make restitution for that? Out of the best, verse 5, the best of my field. I'm called here to love them as God commands me to love them. And what that means is that I make restitution. The last section, verse 7 to 15, relates to matters of borrowing and safekeeping. Now, you and I can hardly relate to a world in which this would happen because you put your money in the bank or maybe under your mattress or you have a safe in your house or you have a lock on your door. But in the ancient world, people don't have any of those things. And so if I'm going to leave my home and go visit family, I'm going to have to ask a friend to watch out for the things that I have. And so here's a set of laws to deal with issues that could potentially arise in those scenarios. Verse 7 is identical to what we've already seen. If you leave your your things with your neighbor and a thief breaks in and steals from your neighbor's house, the thief is found, that thief pays double, nothing else here. Then verse 8, same scenario, but the thief is not found. In Israel, you're to take the matter to the judges, which means to take it 
uh, which is what it means when it says to take it before God. Those judges are to use wisdom to make an investigation, to pray, to seek the Lord's help. And they are to determine whether the guy who was watching your things stole your things. Verse 9, if there is a question about the matter, you bring it to the judges. You know, I left my wife's jewelry with my neighbor, and he says they were stolen. But it is a little odd. His wife has a set of pearls very similar to the ones that my wife had. And the neighbor says, yeah, I know. We loved them. We just thought they were pretty. We went and bought a set of our own. Sorry about yours. And so here it says, you take it to the judges. You let them seek the Lord's wisdom for help. Then verses 10 through 13 apply to animals. 12 and 13 is kind of cut and dry if you've got your Bible open. Your friend's watching your animal and it's stolen. Then he's got to pay you back for the loss. But he didn't, because he didn't take care of it the same way he might have taken care of his own animals. But if it's torn by wild beasts, that's all the proof he needs. The guy watching your animal picks up some of the parts. He takes it to the elders. He says, I, I, I wish this hadn't happened. I couldn't stop the lion. The Bible says he doesn't owe anything. But verses 10 through 12 presents a case that could so easily happen. I was watching your neighbor's, I was watching my neighbor's donkey. You know, he's an old donkey. And he just fell over in the field and he died. Or no, you know, there was a snake and the snake scared the donkey and the donkey ran away. But I don't have any proof that he ran away. Nobody saw it. In that case, again, his word against your word. You take this to the elders. You make an oath before the Lord. And you might say, how is this really loving? Well, the guy who's been watching the donkey can't do anything more than tell the truth. And the person who's suffered the loss can't really do anything more than accept the oath. What are you going to do? Are you just going to keep being bitter? Or are you going to hang on to this donkey lost for the rest of your life? The Bible says no. You just have to make a promise. And you just have to accept the promise. And you know in real life there really are times when stuff like this happens. I promise. Okay. Well, the hurt was real. And I really did feel it. But I'll take your word for it. Here's a kind of encouragement that there's just some times to let some things go, to trust the Lord, to handle what you can't determine. And then verse 14 through 17 fits perfectly to your world and mine. You borrow something from your neighbor, and if your neighbor is with it when the item or the animal is injured or dies, then you don't owe him anything. But if there's a presumption that, I mean, of course, because the presumption is if he's with you, he's watching over it himself. But if he's not with you and it dies or is injured, then you owe him, according to the text, full restitution. You should take care of the things as if he was watching his own things. And then if there's a rental fee, you, you deal with it according to that rental fee. The rental fee's gone. There's nothing else owed. Now, I said that seems to relate to real life today. How does that relate? 
I don't know if girls still borrow clothes from suite mates in college. That used to be a thing. I don't know if guys in neighborhoods still borrow tools from their friends. That used to be a thing. There is for each of us a posture of heart which says, yeah, yeah, I mean, I did get a stain on it. It's just not that big a deal. Oh, your chainsaw? Yeah, I mean, it's still lodged in the tree. It's just not that big a deal. But you recognize that in these laws, there is a revealing of our own heart. Of course, it's not a big deal because it's not your clothes and it's not your chainsaw. When it's someone else's things, there is a tendency for us to view them not nearly as importantly as we would if they were our own. We've looked at principles, an explanation of the text. Now we come to the ultimate application of the text. Those in Christ bear the fruits of love. Let's look at the issues of the heart. When we looked at the Eighth Commandment several weeks back, we didn't just deal with stealing as virtue of stealing. We actually dealt with it in the realm of stewardship. Being a good steward of someone else's resources, whether it's God's resources or whether it's resources that belong to your neighbor. I suspect in the context like you and I live in, there may not be a lot of stories from your own life where you can go, I remember a time when I used to shoplift and I stole thousands and thousands of dollars worth of clothes and goods. Or there may be no one in the room who could say, I I remember I used to be really good and wicked about stealing money from the federal government on my income tax. There may be nobody who could say, well, I harvested thousands of pens from the local bank. And so there's a tendency when we read a passage like this to go, I just don't know. I just really don't know if it speaks to my heart. Well, it does. Because it's really not simply about stealing. Beneath the heart of stealing, that's really what the passage addresses. There are much deeper issues that relate to loving your neighbor that pertain to neglect. And so I wonder if you might say, I really do believe God's providence. But I'm having a little trouble with a bit of envy. I believe that God's given me good things, but I also believe that he's given to someone else more and better. And then from that envy, when I borrow from that person and I accidentally damage what belonged to them, I might not feel quite so inclined to be concerned about what they lost. I mean, they got more than I've got anyway. They got thousands of clothes. Perhaps it's not what, they've, what they have. Perhaps it's just a tendency of our own heart to be lulled to sleep by our own sense of entitlement or by an undetected sense of self-centeredness so that whether you did something by accident or on purpose, if it cost your neighbor something, you wouldn't even notice because you didn't suffer and you didn't care. Or there's another angle. Perhaps you have so much that you feel immune to feeling the hurts of someone else. And so it is the same heart issue that might lead a person to steal, to break that eighth commandment. 
that might also cause you to be just generally careless with someone else's things, to forget to make restitution. That same heart issue might lead you to value your things more than you would ever value their things or even them as a person. I would be furious if my stuff was lost or damaged. If your stuff is lost or damaged, well, it was an accident. Sorry about that. When it's all said and done, what we're really talking about is a failure to recognize the image of God in another person. It's a failure to give to that person the dignity and respect that a person has by virtue of God placing his image in them. So it's a failure to love them well. So what do you have in your house that belongs to someone else? What have you broken and not paid back? What are you trying to forget about that you should probably make right? And then one other question. What would change you? What would move you from a lazy negligence to a love that God calls us to have for other people? Do you remember Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19 Before he met Christ, it was really nothing for him to stroll into a neighborhood and say, hey, I got word from Rome. It's $5 per pot, per dish that you have in your cupboard. Let's bring it out. You owe me some money. And it was legal. It was legal, but it was wrong. Zacchaeus loved himself more than he loved anybody else. And everybody hated him severely. He didn't care. He's greedy, he's selfish, he's dishonest. That is until Zacchaeus met someone who loved Zacchaeus more than Zacchaeus loved himself. What would change the deeper heart issues of a man like that? The Bible says that the only thing that can teach you to love another person as God intended is to comprehend the love of God for you as he intended. It's to meet the Lord Jesus afresh. And so at that moment, Zacchaeus would have understood nothing of the cross. He would have understood nothing of Jesus' death to pay for his sins. All he knew is that this man, Jesus, seems to show me a genuine love. And it was that love for Christ in response to the love from Christ that drove Zacchaeus to genuine repentance And so Zacchaeus comes out with this thing. I'll just restore it fourfold. Where did he get that? From understanding the law? Yeah. But much more than that. It's not from his understanding of the law. It's from a genuine understanding of a repentance. And his grasp of the heart of God. And so friends, if you've never looked upon the face of Christ, but today you sense some knowledge of conviction over your sin... You should recognize that Christ looks upon you with love. And he summons you to lay down your greed, to lay down your envy, to lay down your self-centeredness and your sense of entitlement. You don't deserve his love. And yet he's offering it. That's the offer that drew Zacchaeus to the place of repentance. And so if you're already in Christ but you know that your heart is quite cold towards others, 
you must consider again the love of Christ for you, the generosity of his heart. Because ultimately those in Christ bear the fruits of love because Christ bore the marks of love in his body on a tree. Let's pray. Father, clearly in your word, it is not sufficient to read your law and to be unmoved. And so we pray for the ministry and the help of your Holy Spirit so that we would be transformed from one degree of holiness to another, uh, that we would be warmed by the generous love of Christ, one who gave his life to redeem the selfish thieves, even on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.